0: Welcome to With Purpose, the podcast for people working, investing, and giving with real purpose. My name's David Knowles, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This episode of With Purpose features a remarkable man, and he tells his remarkable story. His name is Simon Morden, and I really enjoyed, as always, talking to Simon about what he really cares about. Everything he does has a purpose, and I think that shines through in this conversation. Enjoy it. Simon, how are you? I'm good, David. How are you? I'm I'm great, thank you. Thanks Uh, for coming up. uh, Well, you've got a beautiful view. We're sat here in your wonderful home, and um, I think we probably both feel quite lucky at the moment. We're blessed. Um, Now, looking around, it's a fantastic place with a beautiful view, but how did you get here? Tell us a little bit about the journey to here.
1: Yeah, Interesting question. So I I grew up in England. Um, Both my parents were working parents, Middle class background. Um, As was the tradition, then I was sent to boarding school when I was seven, and my brother was sent to boarding school when he was five. And um, the consequence of that was I really had no relationship with my family because they both worked during school holidays and we were really brought up by nannies and au pairs. And by the time I finished school um, the IRA was very prevalent. Um, Thatcher had just become prime minister, there was industrial disputes, the garbage wasn't being collected. Um, The father of my best friend at school was um, killed by the IRA and I decided that England was not the place for me. So I traveled overland. I'd never been out of Europe and I thought, let's see where I can get to. So the day I left school, I commenced a journey which eventually got me to Australia and I fell in love with Australia and tried to emigrate. But I had no qualifications. I just you know, passed my school exams, but I had no professional qualifications. And the government here were not encouraging immigration at that time. So I needed a qualification. So I went back to England, qualified as a chartered accountant with the sole purpose of using that to emigrate. And as soon as I qualified, I emigrated, moved to Australia. And um, the rest is history, really. Australia has been very good to me and um, I met my wife here, and uh, we had our son here, and um, we've both been dedicated
0: to making the community a better place. You said towards the start uh, of your description that you were sent off to boarding school at a very early age and didn't really develop a a familial relationship. Uh, How much has that shaped your ability to succeed in life.
1: I suspect that one of the consequences of that challenging upbringing was to create a very independent focused person. I have on my desk at home um, a school report um, from my um, junior school that says mordant because they (laughs) <laughs> they never described the first name, Mordant Major, because my brother was oh, Mordent Minor. minor yeah. um, Mordant Major will not go far in life because he doesn't play cricket. <laughs> now, most children would have been destroyed by that. Um, and in fact, that's made me who I am. Um, in that, response to that, almost a, a, a retaliation to that. Correct. Mm. And um, an interesting story was that um, I heard nothing from my primary school. I went through it, passed, went on to senior school. The journey then happened, I subsequently emigrated, and about five years ago, I got a letter from this primary school saying they were doing a school appeal. This is 40 years after I'd left, I'd heard nothing from them in the 40 years. They'd obviously Googled me, seen I'd been reasonably successful, sent me this letter, and at the bottom of the letter said, um, one of our current students will call you to see if you can support our appeal. So I chucked it in the bin, and one night the phone rang, and it was some you know, young student who told me about the appeal and what they were trying to do, and um, I said, well, yeah, that's very good things that you're doing. I've had no contact with the school for forty years. I didn't really enjoy my time at the school, but I should read you my school report that's sitting on my desk. <laughs> and the poor kid, I mean, he didn't know what to say. And
0: um, anyway, <laughs> that's a good, sto- a good story. I'm going to pull you back again a little bit. Um, you said uh, there's luck in destiny, but there's also that famous phrase: uh, "Character is destiny." It, you've gone on to have a a life where you've been materially successful, but you, to the point of this conversation, you've contributed a lot to the community and, and obviously felt, um, if not a sense of obligation, a, a desire to be involved in and support the community. Where do you think that comes from? That element of your character. Um, I I never had
1: any material wealth or ability to be impactful other than intellectually. And um, I, I always wanted to help organizations intellectually. And then when I was able to financially, um, my wife and I don't believe in inheritance. And I inherited a set of cufflinks from my father, which when I am at work, I wear every day. And that's the only thing I inherited from my family. And um, given that we've seen how inheritance or the prospect of inheritance has destroyed families, um, we, from a very early stage of our relationship, um, decided that however successful we were, um, inheritance was not going to be part
0: of that journey. You've made a deliberate Policy decision almost to say, uh, philosophical decision really, isn't it, to say that you don't want to, um, uh, really you don't believe in inheritance and you've seen the damage that it can do. question I've got, I hadn't planned to ask you, but I think a lot of families in a similar position faced with the choice like you had to make uh, might be interested in hearing you talk about is how do you avoid the potential uh, other downside from that policy or philosophy, which is potential resentment. Um, from children that um, perceive that they may have missed out on an inheritance. How, how, do, you, how do you approach something like that? Yeah, so we talk- we, um, we have one
1: child. Um, he's um, almost 30. He's married. Um, he lives in New York. Um, he's grown up with us around the table, debating that from a very young age. Um, he's known and respected our... Uh, desires to make a difference in the communities in which we live Um, he's learned areas of passionate engagement that he has that are different to the things that we're interested in so he's got a very strong community awareness as, as has his wife and they respect our decision and you know as as his journeys evolved so our thinking's necessarily had to evolve. You know, We've had this um, philosophy that we don't believe in inheritance, but we've had that before he moved to New York. We had that before he got married. Now we have to think about what provisions we make for um, them in order for them to maintain the modest lifestyle that they have. He's a photojournalist that doesn't... Um, Pay well, but it 's something he 's very passionate about, and um, yeah they they live in a home that we own, and ultimately we 'll have to decide what we do with that but um he 's not sitting there thinking that he 's going to win the lottery <laughs> when we die yeah. and sitting on his bum as a consequence.
0: When you answered that previous question, one of the things that really stood out in, in the early part of your answer. Was in in the family sense and the inheritance sense that you debated it and you debated it multiple times. And so talking about things, getting things out there, airing them, um, examining them, and allowing people to have input, I'm assuming um, was important. And I, um, uh, you know, feel free to add to that if you want. You know, I I have a
1: client um, who I've looked after for a very long time when I first met him. I obviously knew his background, an extremely wealthy person. Um, I asked him what his objectives were. And he said to me, my ambition is to leave each of my children, and he had four children, $500 million each. That was okay. his focus. And in my first meeting with him, I said, I'm not sure that's a great <laughs> thing to do. And he explained his family heritage and his background, which I respected. And I talked to him about why not set up a philanthropic arm, um, which I'm pleased to say he subsequently did, and it's become a very large philanthropic arm. And then as I got to know him, he said he wanted to leave each of his grandchildren $500 million (laughs) each. And... I started to talk to him about legacy and how he could be more impactful and how that ambition could be potentially very damaging on the family and the power it created that he would hold over the family. Um, but ultimately people operate in different ways. You know, We were um, and we're not mega wealthy, we're, we're well off, but we're not mega wealthy, but we were the first Australians to publicly declare that we wanted to give everything away while we were alive. Mm. And, um, yeah, that, that's not an easy thing to actually juggle, because you don't know when you're going to die. Mm. Um, and you don't know whether you're going to confront health issues or um, other issues later in life. But, uh, our ambition is that our last check bounces.
0: Well, uh, that's the philosophy of someone I've been lucky enough to have um, s- some uh, connection to, through the Atlantic Philanthropies Foundation, Chuck Feeney, and obviously that's uh, what his wish is too. And talking to the people who have run the foundation for him, um, including Chris, the CEO, it's very clear that he has now got Almost nothing, and the people around him are concerned that he has enough to survive for the remainder of his life. Um, So that juggle is—it's a real, very real question, isn't it?
1: And Chuck Chuck is um, a hero of mine. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Chuck Chuck did one thing that we've not done, um, and that is had a very dogged focus on investment. And um, so he sold his business, he sold his business well um, and then focused on how he could take that capital and materially grow it, mm-hmm. um, which then gave him the engine room to give more away. Yeah. Um, we, we have been so focused on generating that capital to give away and that we've not put the time or energy into how to increase that right. capital so whilst chuck remains um right at the top of my heroes list and a great inspiration for us um the piece he's done better than we've done is the reinvestment piece
0: well he's i mean he's uh he's extraordinary man and done extraordinary things hasn't he but um you just mentioned you're up at four o'clock. I think when I wrote to you and said, could we do this podcast? I think it was, I sent you an email something like 5.35. I think at 5.38, you replied. If your name comes up in conversation, and I'm talking to someone who knows you well, I always say the same thing, Simon. I say, I'll tell you two things about Simon. You send him an email, you always get an answer within five minutes, and it's never more than five words long. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the, uh, uh, How do you? how do you work? You're up very early and you work I can see you work consistently through your waking hours. Um, how, how do you approach your work and how do you make sure that you're efficient and effective in juggling this huge number of things that you do? You, you find time for the things you
1: love. Um, my wife calls me octopus because <laughs> I keep growing arms and I'm not very good at saying no. Um, but the, the one constraint we have is time um and um that's something important to understand because if you want to do things well um you've got to judicially manage your time and um that's something that's important to us because there are things that we want to do together and there are things that we want to um, manage well, and time is a scarce resource. I, I can see how we can meet our objective of giving everything away while we're alive, but um, making sure you've got enough waking hours in the day is important.
0: If you look at the life you've had here, particularly here in Australia, what looms large is the amount of time and, uh, and other resources and assets you've given to the MCA. And you're just coming to the, as is as known publicly, coming to the end of, yeah. of that period. As, as you look out there over the water and you, you, know, you have a glass or whatever it is you have at, at the end of the day, what are you thinking about that time and what you've achieved there? Yeah, I,
1: yeah when I first got involved with the MCA, it was 30 years ago. The, the physical MCA hadn't actually opened. Um, I was a new migrant to Australia. I had an interest in contemporary art. There was no institution in Australia focused on contemporary art. I could go to the art gallery and see colonial Australian art, or what I call dead art, um, but I couldn't engage with anything that was living or exciting or challenging. And then I heard about the initiative to start the MCA and we were one of the early supporters we gave. I think there were a thousand people who gave a thousand dollars each. And that was a big donation for us at that time. And I never imagined that 15, 20 years later, I'd be um, writing out a check for $15 million for the expansion.
0: Yeah. Well, just, just, just how did that feel? Literally writing out the check for, for fifteen million dollars. How, what goes through your mind at a time like that?
1: Yeah, the, I mean, the background is that um, the museum, when Liz, I, I was involved in recruiting Lizanne McGregor twenty years ago, she's the current mm. director. Um, when she joined, the institution was almost bust, and there were periods where my wife and I were paying the payroll. Um, The audience was under 100,000 a year. Mm. And at her first board meeting, she wanted to remove the admission charge. And the admission charge was the only income the institution was getting. (laughs) Sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Um, And I thought, A, we've made a bad mistake recruiting this (laughs) woman, and B, she's crackers. But in fact, she was right because in removing the admission charge, suddenly um, the barriers to access were taken away, Mm. and people would pop in and be inquisitive, whereas if they were facing an admission charge and not knowing what they were going to get, they wouldn't come by. Mm. So um, 10 years into her directorship, the audience had grown to half a million people, which was quite remarkable. And the place was bursting at the seams. The circulation wasn't working. Um, There was no education facilities. The classes were happening on the floors of the galleries. And I could see a point where she was going to quit because she couldn't um, take the institution any further. So I encouraged her to think about redeveloping a vacant car parking space that was on the northern end of the site. There had been a few attempts to do that Mm. by previous boards, which had not been successful. And um, she took up that challenge and asked if I was prepared to lead the campaign. And I said that I'm not um, a committee person where people turn up and explain why they haven't done things. (laughs) And um, I'm willing to take responsibility to lead the campaign if it's a committee of two, being her and I. And I would take responsibility to raise the funds. Um, and then I realized that if I was going to go and ask people for money, I needed to make a leadership commitment myself. So my wife and I agreed To kickstart the campaign was $5 million. It was a $53 million campaign. And I also said that I wanted to make that conditional on the then chairman, David Coe and his wife, Michelle, uh, matching us so that we could go out knowing that we had 20% of the Mm. campaign raised before we started. And David and Michelle agreed. And then we started on the journey. Um, We did very well. The state matched um, our combined pledge and a number of individuals who were shocked at the scale of the commitment we made um, came forward and made offers to support the campaign and then the GFC hit. and The consequence of the GFC was a couple of fold. Firstly, Um, David Coe got into financial difficulty and was not able to follow through with his pledge. Secondly, a number of the other philanthropists who got on the journey with us um, had lost a lot of their wealth and were anxious that the project wouldn't proceed and that they had got contingent liability in their pledge and they weren't clear whether it was going to happen or not. Um, so we were confronted with three or four years of work um, at risk of evaporating. So um, I, I said to my wife one evening, um, we need to break this deadlock, You know, we're half in, we've got to go full in and see what happens. Um, I'd like to increase our pledge to $15 million, um, on condition that the state government matches that, and on condition that the federal government enter the game with us, because the federal government had sat on the fence. Mm -hmm. Um, I also said to her that Australia has a history of tall poppy syndrome, and... I don't want to be here when that's announced because I'm anxious about how my team at work will feel about it and how my clients will feel about it. Mm. And so I want to go and see the director and tell her what our decision is, but I want to be out of the country Mm. at the time of the announcement. And, um, my wife, agreed to our plan 15 million dollars by the way at that point was pretty much everything we had yeah. so it was it was a poker hand it was mm. a really an all-in mm. hand yeah. um, so we gave Lizanne six months to get the federal government on board we said at the end of the six months if you're not there the project folds um, and we're moving to Italy and you call us, call us when it's done mm. and um, she, you know, she and I have had many discussions with the federal government but armed with that um, set of cards we gave her she got the federal government on board the state government increased their pledge and the campaign was closed and done and there was no tool poppy response, there was no adverse reaction, but we were anxious there would be, and in fact a number of philanthropists have said to me since then that that pledge by us made them start to think about what they were doing in their philanthropic journey, and a number of very wealthy people um, have become much more attuned to philanthropy as a consequence of that which we had never anticipated I, I think we did well over 300 dinners with couples during that five years of capital appeal mm. there would have been dinners at least twice a week i i put on 60 kilos during that journey and which i've since <laughs> lost by the way um But um, the number of people who I met, and I think I saw over a 1,000 people in that five years that that came to a point where people wouldn't take my call because they knew what I was calling about. Um, The number of people I met who were vastly more wealthy than us, who had no interest in community, really upset me. And I didn't mind if people said, you yeah, know, contemporary art's not for me. Um, we, we have an interest in supporting retired cricketers or three-legged dogs. That's not my business. Mm. Um, but what my business is, is to ensure people are making a difference mm. in something that interests them. And I couldn't believe the number of people who had no interest outside their business. And that made me very upset. Mm. And um, I'm really pleased that since then, um, the number of people who've contacted me and said, how do we get involved in community? Um, What do we do? That I've been able to help on that journey. Some very, very wealthy people and some less wealthy people. But I think that that gift... um, really created a bit of a wake up call in the community and the knock on effect has been fantastic.
0: Yeah, look, it's easy for me to say this because I'm in your house, but I have been working in the philanthropic, the industry side of it for many years here. And honestly, I think that was a game changer because uh, philanthropy wasn't spoken about. um, It wasn't, it was almost distasteful in certain quarters. And the, the, the tall poppy's part of that, but I'll just give you a little anecdote from my days when I first started to become the person at the firm I worked for, to, to talk to clients and colleagues about philanthropy. Uh, I remember that the most common re- response was from colleagues, why would I talk to people about giving money away? My job's to make them wealthier. Uh, and I remember I ran a, a, founder, a corporate foundation at the time and the, chair, the then chair, who was, who was actually a board member of the, the company, also had the role as chair of the foundation. And the first time I met him, I went in the room for the board meeting and he had his feet on the boardroom table and said, this is a effing waste of time, isn't it? And I remember thinking, it's not really core, cool, necessarily core cool to the business and to your thinking, obviously, um, to put it to put it mildly. That has changed. And I, I think you de- very much, as a couple, you have made it okay to talk about and uh, I hadn't appreciated until I came here today how actively you did that on a hand-to-hand combat basis. Of course, you know, p- being able to be prepared to put yourself out there in the mm. paper uh, is one thing, but I hadn't realized the scale of the personal undertaking to go out and win the hearts and minds mm. and open the wallets. And I want to ask you about how you do that because it struck me that you did it yourself. You didn't, for example, delegate that. Um, And one of the things that frustrates me when I am advising boards and committees and leadership teams, particularly on the fundraising side, is the idea that there are a team of fundraisers who will take care of that. I can see you shaking your head. Tell us about your approach and what you think about that other approach.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is a whole profession of consultants who assist organisations in raising money. Um, like any profession, there are some good players and there are some less good players. Um, at the end of the day, my experience with those participants—it's—it's it's a bit like management consulting. You you to, you give them all the information, and they come back with a glossy PowerPoint presentation, um, rehashing everything that you've <laughs> given them, mm. and then. They What's give, that phrase? You give them your watch, and they tell you the time. So, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I think if you're going to take responsibility to do something, um, you've got to put your heart and mind into it, and you've got to take responsibility. And people want to deal with those people who are passionate about
0: the cause. What are the lessons do you think you pick out of your time, uh, particularly? Uh, with the MCA up um, in lights at the moment what what do you kind of reflect on when you think you 've what you 've learned in a uh, in a community sense so I think art speaks of the issues of
1: today, and living artists in particular speak of the issues of today and just continuing that MCA story, when we closed to do the redevelopment, we were half a million people a year and breaking at the seams. Now we're, since the redevelopment, we're over 1.1 million a year. And last year we were announced as the most visited contemporary art museum in the world. Yeah. Which, given the population of Sydney, relative to New York or London or Paris, is really extraordinary. And it, yeah, it's a credit to the management team um,
0: that they've created experiences that people want to engage with. Speaking of the management team, I'm pretty sure I heard Lizanne McGregor on the radio within the last 24 hours this morning. talking about the contribution of the institution um, and talking about it in terms of investment and... Right, that's a narrative i see developing across um the not for profit sector um, which is that terrible term we still use uh but how do you so that so that was a way of looking at it that says look that if you if you put money into an institution like this it's an investment and look at the contribution we make which can be um focused on mental health it can be focused on many other things um what what how do you see the value of these type of artistic cultural institutions in our society?
1: I, I, I think if you want a vibrant community, culture is right at the core. And if you look at some of these Asian communities, Hong Kong never invested in culture, Singapore never invested in culture, and they discovered that their brightest people were leaving those communities, and because the glue wasn't there and over the last 10 years both of those countries have made massive investments in culture in order to attract the best and brightest people to live there and for us if you didn't have these institutions in Sydney it would be a really dull place and so I think culture in its broadest sense is vitally important for a
0: vibrant community. And, and I know that you're, again, because um, you've been public about it, you're taking a lead and being vocal about um, the need to, to reinvest in um, the arts sector, because we're in the middle of this pandemic, or we shouldn't say the middle, we are in the early stages of dealing with mm. um, a changed world. Um, how do you think it'll play out from here, and what do you think needs to be done for the for the betterment of the sector um, given what we, what you think we might be heading into well, I
1: think yeah, it, it starts with those people who make creative output, so everything starts with the artist or the performer, the actor, the musician, the poet, the writer, um, if you don't have them however. building you have, you've got nothing to put in it. So for me, making sure we have um, a body of creative people who are able to sustain themselves um, during this very challenging time is vitally important. And credit to the government in terms of job keeper and job seeker, which has enabled some of those people, not all of them, but some of them to continue to have a livelihood. I mean the MCA is one of the largest employers of artists in the country and uh, most of our volunteers, most of our educators are artists and if you have an institution that's shut you, you can't give them a livelihood so um, that's something that makes me very anxious mm. um, you know the government have now announced that museums can open from the beginning of June um, but I think it'll be a long time before we have concerts and theatre mm. and how people will be comfortable going to concerts and theatre is yet to pan out. So. Mm.
0: Very, di- very difficult challenges. Yeah. Um, two final quick questions because uh, we're almost out of time um, you coming, coming through in this conversation is the idea of someone who gets things done. Now, your intellect uh, has enabled you to do that in part. You mentioned your intellect as being the asset that you thought could help you contribute. But what else? What are the secrets that you employ or have developed over time that you think enable you to be successful and get things done? Um, in the community and the business sense? Yeah,
1: I I mean, I think um, focus is really important. Um, A a lot of people get buried in the today and don't think over the horizon. So I I, I am very um, focused as an individual and um, I'm ambitious as well. Mm. So I'm ambitious for my own business, but I'm also ambitious for the institutions that we're both involved with. And unlike many people, um, we see our role as helping management teams realize their ambitions. So we we don't see um, interfering in strategy unless we feel the strategy is going in the wrong direction. We're there to help people intellectually and financially meet the ambitions they have for those institutions. And a long time ago we decided to stop writing checks when people asked us. Um, The check bit was the easy bit. Um, We made a very conscious decision that we would support a, a much smaller group of institutions um, where we believed in the governance structure where we believed in the management where we had the time to get involved intellectually and where the financial support would follow so we've now cut down <coughs> the number of places we support but we support those places uh, in a much more meaningful way um, on a multi-year basis and in pretty much every case um, one of us is on the board mm. um, contributing intellectually as well. So um, that, that's been a really stimulating
0: journey for yeah. us. I said two questions, two and a half because you said something there. Um, focus is very important and you focus on the horizon. How do you do that? Do you carve out specific time to think? Is it just something that happens whilst you sit on the veranda there and you, at the end of the day? I mean, how, what is, what, how do you approach the idea of making sure you keep your eye on the horizon and think, think um, about the bigger picture?
1: Um, I, I'm a great believer in um, having clear headspace and making sure that you don't get buried in the weeds. If you get buried in the weeds, it's very hard to see the horizon
0: great I think thank you uh, um, final question we're each in our own different ways um, at times evangelists for a life of you know that involves purpose of giving community philanthropy, uh, making a contribution <clears throat> uh, me principally through my work um, and you uh, in a well documented way. Um, how, what what kind of, in closing can you say to those that have not yet been converted, uh, the person who um, might be so consumed with and and maybe for very good reason um, for building a life for their, them and their family uh, and from trying to trying to build a life that involves career success and financial success, what what do you have to offer uh, by way of advice or insight or reflection to those people to encourage them to think about a life with purpose in it.
1: So so firstly, money is not relevant. Um, So you don't need to have financial capacity to be impactful. Um, Australia's got a great tradition of volunteering. Um, Most organizations are desperate for intellectual support. They may also be desperate for financial support, but that they're all open to intellectual support and support of time. So, irrespective of your financial capacity, everyone can make a difference. Secondly, it's a huge amount of fun. Um, it's not an obligation. I have been on boards where I have found it an obligation and have got off relatively quickly. Um, But it's an enormous amount of fun. We've met the most amazing people over the last 30 years. We've learned a huge amount. I'm I'm now on, as you say, I'm, I'm finishing up at the MCA, but I'll still stay involved. But I'm on the board of MoMA in New York. I'm on the board of MoCA in Los Angeles. I'm on the Tate Council in London. And all those... Learnings are shared. Mm. So, you yeah, the free admission that we brought in at the MCA 20 years ago, I was able to persuade MoMA to go free. And um, on the back of that, I've recently been able to persuade Mocha to go free. I've learned from MoMA about online strategies that we brought back and used at the MCA. So, uh, that The learning experience and the sharing experience and the ability to make a difference doesn't have to be financial. It makes you a better person, it makes your family um, have purpose, and it makes your priorities different. I mean, I would not want to underestimate that we live well, but I have no need for another house I have no need for a boat or a car and um, I get much more pleasure and um, be able to make a difference um, at an organization whether it's big or small and um, and see how that can be impactful than I have around another toy or a, mm. um, anything else and it's the most important thing is it's shared and has been shared from day one my wife and i have an identical philosophy slightly different interests she's got more of an interest in the performing arts because she grew up in that background um but that journey has been totally shared and i don't think either of us could have done it without the other hmm. and um
0: the final part of the secret source um, I'm worried about your time because you've got, yeah, got you've got up. a board meeting coming yeah. up. I know. Um, so I want thank you first of all. You've Pleasure. been supportive of an initiative that I, I was trying to kick off. Um, so thank you for your support for me. Thank you for your the, you know the contribution to this country and, and um, congratulations on everything you've achieved, particularly at the MCA as that's front and center. Uh, I know it's far from the end. It's just one chapter. The octopus is out there. <laughs> unable to help itself I think Um, but for very good reason and with with very good effect so uh, congratulations on all of that and thanks for your time My
1: pleasure and really um, on behalf of the community I work in thank you for putting philanthropy at the centre of your business because um, it's not about a financial return for you guys it's about changing behaviour in your clients and there are not many organisations that have made that investment in philanthropic advice, and um, I think it's fantastic what you guys
0: are doing. So, um, which thank you, rare that you say it in a competitive sense, but we hope more will follow and join um, uh, in the future. So yeah, it's a, it's
1: interesting. We when we um, started Luminous, um, we each talked about our own drivers and ambitions. And for me, I was really clear that I love my clients. I love the business. We were blessed that clients were prepared to pay us a lot of money. But for me, the only reason to do it again was that it would generate more capital to do things in the community Mm. that we wanted to do. Um, And I said to my partners, I'd like to make a foundation central to our new business. They, they, my, my three partners were completely on board with that um, what none of us realized was that the Gen Y and Gen X generation flocked to our business not because they wanted to be investment bankers but because they wanted to work for an organization that had a purpose.
0: And we had never thought about that. Hmm. Well, it's a great way to end. And I do think you have to go because I can see you watch. watching. Right. <laughs> um, I do. Uh, It's a great way to end because this podcast is a n- new series and it's really a podcast for people working, investing, or giving with purpose. And actually what you just said there, that luminous Foundation. story captures it all because you're working for a purpose and that purpose is so you can generate more to then give with a purpose and of course you are there's, a, there's the whole investment theme runs through mm-hmm. that and maybe with the foundation as well so um, great way to end and, and thanks very thanks much for you coming for out. Your time thanks very Thank much you. David. that's the end of this episode thanks for listening for more episodes go to the podcast page on codecapital.com you can also see there our other podcast episodes from the How I Did It series. And if you'd like to get some free um, insights for the charitable and nonprofit sector and for the broader investment sector, then um, head over to codacapital.com insights page. Thank you.